Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. This week I've returned to talk to a fund manager whose multi-cap equity fund has the distinction, according to research by FE Trustnet, a third-party independent research firm, of having outperformed its benchmark, the FTSE All Share Index, in every rolling five-year period since 2000. It's one of only two funds in the UK all companies sector to have done so. Now, it's true that you don't necessarily want a fund to have as its aim consistent outperformance in every single period, as greater volatility might produce a higher absolute performance over time. But nevertheless, the achievement of having done so over such a long period and through more than one market cycle speaks volumes about the discipline and effectiveness of the investment process. The fund manager in question is Richard Hallett, whose Marlborough UK multi-cap growth fund has, as its name suggests, freedom to invest across the UK market spectrum all the way down from the FTSE 100 index to the AIM market. I last caught up with Mr Hallett just over a year ago, before the Brexit referendum, and I was keen to see how his thinking has changed since then. Well, Richard, it's just over a year since we last uh, talked about your fund and the outlook for the markets. In that time, obviously, there's been quite a lot of uh, drama on the uh, political stage with uh, Brexit and Trump and so on, but the markets have uh, dealt with all that uh, remarkably uh, well, I think. I wonder what you think yeah. in broad terms about how the, uh, you know, where we are in the market cycle and what's been happening over the last 12 months or so. That's a big question. In terms of my philosophy and investment process, I try to be as economically um, business cycle agnostic as possible um, on the premise that cycles are incredibly hard to forecast. And I don't know anyone in the history of investment markets who's actually called these things correctly on a consecutive basis. We all know big-name fund managers who've made a few billion by getting one cycle right, but normally they've made a bit of a fudge going forward into the next one. And having been lived through two big cycles, namely the dot-com boom and bust and the Lehman Brothers credit crisis, um, I've witnessed lots of uh, big fund managers who've got great bull market five-year track records that have blown up spectacularly through these big downturns, which they've un- been unable to forecast because something has happened from left field. So uh, my strategy is all about trying to find a strong uh, businesses which can deliver compounded earnings growth through a business cycle, uh, through a very strong, um, sustainable competitive advantage and a leadership position in their markets. And sitting back 18 months ago, um, I'm sure I would told you, as I have done with other uh, people, investors, that uh, I was very circumspect about the world's economy, uh, having been um, bolstered by uh, huge amounts of quantitative easing in the West, which has caused misalignment of capital, uh, loud sort of uh, cyclical uh, businesses that would have gone bust through a normal downturn to sort of stay afloat and hasn't really allowed a proper sort of restoration of uh, a proper business cycle to continue. And what we've seen um, uh, to that date was a sort of saucepan-type recovery, a very tepid recovery, um, with uh, a very difficult outlook to uh, to read through, given that none of us have seen the effects of that sort of concept easing. And that's on top of what's happening in the uh, emerging markets, including China, where you're seeing I mean, equally sort of massive build-up in credit and debt, and um, uh, a very difficult uh, situation with their sort of transition from an infrastructure of uh, investment-led growth to consumption-led growth, which is difficult to see how they're going to manage that successfully with a particularly booming property markets and 
balance sheet credit build-up in, in, um, in its sectors. 18 months ago, I was very market neutral. I was very conscious that I didn't want to have any cyclical stocks in the portfolio at all, and I was cautious about global growth. What's happened in the last 16 months or so is that we've seen a resurgence, that things have got marginally better in my view. Particularly in Europe, where I was also uh, very um, uh, nervous 18 months ago, with not seeing any sort of structural imperatives in getting uh, core underlying problems sorted out in terms of debt delivery, uh, payments, build-up of unemployment and just uh, stagnation developing in some of these southern economies. What we've actually seen remarkably, uh, I think it's, it's sort of compounded uh, through the last 18 months or so, is a turnaround in Spain, Italy, France, these big powerhouses in Central Europe, but they're still, they've still got big problems, but we're seeing GDP growth, which is counter to what I might have been seeing uh, talking about 18 months ago. Uh, on top of that, actually, you know, you've seen China do much better than a pessimist like myself might have been thinking about this, the direction of travel, which is important. Um, they are managing the transition uh, and they are uh, tightening monetary policy uh, or trying to and trying to slow this sort of credit cycle boom that's been developing in their off balance sheet sectors over there and they're addressing it uh, but they seem to be engineering it in quite a successful fashion at the moment okay so and in the u.s of course you know numbers follow so i'm just saying that global growth has been improving but that has also been accompanied by a lot of political disruption and noise including of course brexit well, I've been trying to look through that, and it is just noise. And well, you had all this Trump unfair about um, what he might or might not do, but I've uh, never really been developing any sort of investment cases based on sort of tax cuts in the US or build-up of investment infrastructure, because I think it is just, despite what he wants to do, is there are, and it's proving to be the case, serious um, challenges to actually getting these agendas put into practice. Um, but the underlying economic news is actually quite positive in um, in America with the reduced unemployment and uh, actually uh, with quite strong business confidence indicators in the SME sector. Um, and equally with Brexit, moving on to that little issue, <laughs> again, as I, I talked about 18 months ago, I wasn't any of these so-called domestic cyclicals and uh, house builders incorrectly, which have been incredibly powerful sectors to be in over the last eight years or so. And I've been very wrong on that issue and been quite surprised about the enduring strength of the UK economy. I guess one of the reasons is it's a very open economy and does benefit from global growth. And actually, the bullish argument going forward, based on what I've just said, is that the UK will have tailwinds based on that. But I do think that Brexit is a very challenging issue. It's going to have an issue to do with uh, consumer demand, which is... Uh, a major component of GDP um, activity in this country. Um, there are significant headwinds there with inflation and disposable income, uh, very low wage growth, and also business confidence um, investment over the next couple of years as this very difficult sort of series of negotiations are going to continue. I think there are sort of big political things that can come out of this one way or another. You can build a bull case to say, well, Brexit doesn't actually happen and everything's sort of restored to a relatively go-go situation. Um, but uh, on the downside, you can sort of see that negotiations hit a brick wall and we sort of have a, a hard landing. But again, back to Trump, that's not what I want to base economic sort of investment decisions on. It's that sort of dartboard, very hard to predict, sort of guesswork, really. 
Um, so I'm building my portfolio around actually being very careful about any companies that are exposed to domestic economic activity, or if they are, then they are stress-tested and have got strong secular positions in sectors where they are taking out a market share. So 18 months ago, you were saying that uh, basically it was a it was a low-growth world and uh, everyone needed to be prepared for that, and there were things that looking problematic and lying ahead. But this year, there's uh, things have picked up a little bit in certain places, but it's still not a dramatic growth that we're seeing. And you have this um, you oh, know, concern about, about the UK, uh, and therefore you're looking mainly for global companies with some sort of global reach or some sort of global advantage. That is a fair summary. That's fair. I'm still very cautious. I still don't want to set the fund on global growth, but at the margin, I'm more pro-global growth, uh, a bit more optimistic about economic activity going forward than I was 18 months ago. And you'll say, as you say, you're largely discounting all this political noise that's going on, in part because you think it is just noise, and, and possibly in part because you, I think what we all know is that it's not necessarily going to turn out the way that, uh, the way that everybody's talking absolutely. about at the moment. Absolutely, I think it is. It's noise, and and uh, absolutely on that second point, it's very hard to develop a view. So you've got to err uh, on the side of caution, really, on that side of things. And if everything works out hunky dory, then so much the better. But I'm not going to take a punt on it. Okay, so let's have a little look at your portfolio. Um, as we know, you're, you, it's, it's a UK fund, but it's uh, basically a multi-cap fund, growth fund, which means that you can look in any uh, segment of the market, the, the, from the FTSE down to, uh, down to AIM, and um, that gives you some extra choices, I guess, when it comes to looking for growth stocks. One of the themes you mentioned is um, technological change in global commerce, in global trade. Uh, what are you trying to do there? What sort of companies are you, do you own in that uh, space? Well, I mean, there's various themes within um, technological change, which I think are important. And um, I think it was the chairman of uh, Pricewaterhouse Global Consulting Division who said about seven months ago when asked what were the fastest growing sort of areas that he's seeing from global companies um, in his business. And he said, well, it's technological change and it is basically anything to do with blockchain, cloud computing, data analytics, artificial intelligence, stroke robotic automation uh, services. I'll probably miss one out there. Those sorts of areas. So do you go looking for, you know, you, you identify these themes and then you go looking for companies that represent them or do you start by coming across, you know, in your screening of the companies on the market, you look for ones that happen to be in that sector. Which way around does it work for you? I mean, take someone like, you know, uh, Abcam or Blue Prism, those are two companies in your in your portfolio. Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't think it starts necessarily with one or the other. It probably starts with both, really. Researching the market and understanding trends is obviously an imperative, um, but also meeting lots of companies and talking to my colleagues here who where we see lots of different companies and I'm having a very vibrant discussion across the, the market cap spectrum um, is the other. The investment process is sort of multifaceted and it's about collective sort of wisdom and sort of historical experience really of building up understandings of markets and how they're developing and talking to a range of companies to get um, read across ideas and certainly um, the idea is not to follow and try and exploit speculative new themes it's to just basically find companies which are following an established trend and they are already a leader in that field where they have got traction they have got a portfolio of 
global clients, preferably, you know, they are generating cash. It's not a new blue sky, new product sort of theme. And, and on that score, you know, blockchain is a interesting sector, but I haven't come across any ideas or any stocks in the UK market or globally, actually, where they fulfill those sorts of criteria. There are a whole host of micro-cap, fintech-type technology stocks looking to get involved in that sector, but they're all far too early stage. It's very hard to see uh, at this stage who are going to be the leaders in this field, whereas, for instance, something like artificial intelligence strokes or robotic uh, automation what we call RPA, robotic process automation type software. Um, Blue Prism, which IPO'd on the A market, is done exceptionally well, does have what we think is clear sort of global leadership in terms of its involvement in that area. There's no sort of massively advanced technology breakthrough that it's got that others can't replicate, but what it has got is very clear distribution and branding and sales capability, which is going to be very hard for others to catch up with. And they've got um, a huge roster now and growing roster of Fortune 500 companies just starting really to, to use their piece of the kit um, on what we think is a very early stage, but fast growing team, I think, going forward. The trouble with some of these stocks, of course, is that they're very expensive because they're, they're growth stocks and they are in demand. What sort of rating yes. I mean, do you have is, is there on Blue Prism at the moment? Out of all the stocks in the portfolio, that is one where the valuation is most challenged. And, uh, you know, it has done incredibly well. And we have sold probably 30% of the holding um, already um, on that, primarily because of that particular fact. Um, it is a market cap of about six 700 million it's probably got 25 million of turnover and it's not even profitable so on a conventional valuation metric of cash flows profitability it's very hard to justify and even if you look out two years it's also incredibly hard to justify so what one needs to do and it's always been the case since ipo is to look at its competitive positioning look at the traction that they've got, look at their distribution reach, look at the potential size of the market, which obviously is very, very large, then actually that sort of market cap doesn't look particularly challenged if you can look a few years further out. This is one of the things about about the investment process is we do like to look a bit further out than other investors. And that's where we think the opportunity is. So uh, we have to see how well, well it can I grow. Have to say, it's, it's the revenue forecasts are increasing all the time. The rate of growth is accelerating, you know, um, which is not a bit unusual. And uh, the size of the market is growing as new geographies come into the equation. And, uh, you know, whether it's Japan and um, Asia and its leadership position is still, you know, is still relatively unchallenged. And, um, it is very exciting. The question mark is always the valuation. That is why we've sort of sold 30% of our position. If it carries on, I think probably we will sell a bit more, but um, we'll wait. It's one to watch, really. You've got another stock in your portfolio, which, which a lot of people now own, another explosive growth stock called uh, Fever Tree, the specialist drinks uh, oh, maker, which has also done unbelievably well. Yeah. On any conventional analysis, it also looks pretty expensive, does it not? Yes, and, and indeed it always has done. And well, I must admit, it's more expensive now than it was. But then again, the opportunity available to it, or rather the risk associated with the opportunity, is reduced. 
I was uh, I didn't get involved right away, Scott, because I was very sceptical at IPO about the risks associated with entering the U.S. market, which was a sort of new geography for them. You know, there's completely new distribution um, uh, incumbent uh, companies in there, which I thought that it would be much more challenging for them. But I've been pleasantly surprised at how well uh, they have entered uh, the U.S. And, you know, they've got some massive opportunities going forward with entering the sort of dark spirit market over there with a range of new products. The business model is very um, capital light. Uh, they outsource everything. They employ very few people. I mean, as they scale up, I mean, there's a lot of underlying things about the business they can do to the business as they get larger. Now, they can insource various components of their supply chain, for instance, which will rapidly increase their margins, which will materially improve profits um, as they get bigger when they decide to do that. But they're growing so fast, it makes sense for them to keep it all outsourced. Again, with that sort of business, one has to be very circumspect about you know, the valuation, but need to look a few more years out. Participants have always sort of said, well, fever tree looks so expensive, but what they fail to do is, is look a bit further out than just sort of 18 months or the next year sort of thing. Um, and look at their tra- their rate of growth and the size of the opportunity. Last year when we spoke, I asked you which stock you thought that uh, had the most long-term potential in your portfolio, and you mentioned uh, RPC Group. Now, obviously, that's been oh, a, a very interesting <laughs> one. Very interesting one this year. They've made a big acquisition, and uh, the market didn't like it very much. But that's the shares really are actually still still higher than they were when you when we talked about it last year, but it's uh, uh, been rather a rocky ride since then. What's your feeling so about that company now? I've known this employed and invested in this company for over 15 years now, and its DNA is all about consolidating the uh, plastic packaging market really around Europe, which they've done incredibly successfully, and eating out the synergies on the cost side, and particularly with the polymer costs, and um, and also on the revenue side, where they're sort of cross-selling new imported product solutions to existing customers. Um, but what they've done since we last spoke is continue on that basis and uh, really ramp up and accelerate the level of consolidation in terms of M&A. They have further uh, made many, several acquisitions in Europe, but also further afield into Australia, South Africa. And more recently, what's done the, thing, the damage is the, um, they've entered into another uh, an acquisition in the US market, which was really signaled in their prior strategy pieces and worried people that they were just taking on too much too quickly with a company as you'll know making lots of acquisitions it's very hard to sort of delve into the accounts and get a strong handle on the underlying cash flows where you sort of strip out exceptional items there's always an ability for management to sort of move things about so there have been a few question marks there and that has triggered a few sell-side pieces from various broken houses citing these various issues about, well, what is the true return on capital on these uh, new investment products? What is the underlying cash flow? Are these exceptionals really exceptional? So you've got lots of new investors involved who don't know or haven't got the history with it that perhaps we have. So the share price has taken a bit of a tanking. It did go up to over 10 quid. Um, yeah. uh, it's fallen to as low as sort of seven quid. Um, it's now eight pounds eighty after a strong rise this morning. And management have reacted to all this commentary. They've told um, 
everybody trading update trading very good in line with expectations or slightly ahead in fact the last two or three updates have said trading is ahead of expectations they've announced that they're going to stop doing acquisitions during this whole course of this year the exceptional items will not go up in fact they're going to come down they're going to do a cash buyback all these sorts of things which are i think the market's taking quite positively on top of that you know as far as we look at it well it's the same story they're doing all the right things the ratings come way back it's moving up a little bit now but it's still way oversold um you know keep with it sort of thing and what management have arguably got wrong is communication with investors uh, they're doing everything right and uh it'll play out well in the longer term they've been vulnerable to some sell-side research unnerving investors in the market where there's been a lot of indigestion i should say through various fundraising but the underlying news and fundamentals, I think, all look good. It's probably one of our largest holdings across the whole firm here, across all our sort of different fund groups, because it sort of fits a variety of different strategies, you know, in terms of growth and income. And it's got a stable management team uh, who we've got uh, high regard for. So what else have you been, what other kind of stocks have you been adding to the portfolio in the last, say, in the last six months? You mentioned a few names there. Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, um, one is, Alpha Financial, which is an IPO, uh, as of a few months ago. They're sort of a global leader in finance, asset management, sort of leasing software to global companies, big banks, big motor insurance companies, big motor retailers. Mercedes-Benz, I think, is a client of theirs. A lot of the big banks like HSBC are a client of theirs. And um, a lot of these global companies in terms of their asset management software systems are reliant on legacy software type services which are not geared up for modern technology whether it's cloud computing they're so large they've got a multiple of different sort of software packages which are hard to bolt together and are very sort of costly to maintain they're not scalable they're not flexible um so anyway these these guys have come across with a sort of market leading new technology solution a lot of these big multinational companies have historically sort of built their own packages and so obviously there's a trend towards outsourcing to more flexible arrangements which can lower costs anyway the point is they're a global leader multinational uh, customer list very fast crossing the base um appears to be a market leading proposition very high growth big sector to go for um, very high returns on capital and all the sorts of metrics which we like. So that's something we've picked up on. Um, and the other one I have picked up in the last six months or so is a company called Renishaw, which is circa three billion pound global engineering business, uh, global leader in the metrology space. So in fact, I've, again, I've followed it for about 20 years. When I first started the city, it was a, it was a small cap stock in my boss's small cap fund at the time, but it's now not too far away from the FTSE 100. Um, very, only 5% this is in the UK. It is a global leader in what it does. It's um, involved in developing, selling, manufacturing machine tools, which are involved in sort of calibration, measurement, very high-end um, industrial uh, tooling, which feeds into global industrial sectors and, and healthcare sectors, particularly in the industrial sectors, there's a very big trend towards a sort of 3D printing, but also more sort of just industrial automation. 
you know, all around the world, people are retooling, um, putting in new bits of kit to try and eke out efficiencies. Um, it's similar to what we're talking about with um, Blue Prism, which is more, which is a software company selling into large global businesses. Redishaw has been around for a long, long time. They spend a huge amount of their P&L account on R&D. They're renowned, renowned as a, a leader in their field. And if you are putting in some bit of high-end um, calibration tools, then you'll want to use a bit of kit, which is well-known and tested, and, and um, you won't want to go for a number two sort of cheaper option. It does look um, rather. It does look rather so expensive, though, as well. Again, it is. It's a high twenties PE, but you go through the portfolio. There are some. It's not all PEs or thirty stocks. You know, we have got the RPCs of this world, which is on a P of about thirteen, and we've got sort of older sort of consumer companies like Reckitts and uh, Bats and some more sort of traditional type. You know, we've got BP and Shell, for instance. But it's not all about sort of hyper-expensive new sort of uh, technology businesses. And the Redishaw isn't like that. It's, I mean, I have to say it's been around on the market, UK market for 20 years or so. When it's expensive. It is at the higher end, but it is global. It is feeding into this theme of global growth, and it is got, has got a very strong underlying secular theme of retooling in industrial sectors around the world, which I think is really only just starting, really. Um, so I think you'll find that their growth is going to pick up quite a bit in the next few years, where the rating will start to look a bit more reasonable. Well, you could say it because might have to in order to justify the price. So now just talk about the things you don't own, if we may, just for a moment. You're underweighted, I think, in commodities. Uh, you may own BP and Shell, but you're not particularly uh, heavily exposed in, in, in the resources or banking sectors. Is that still the case? Absolutely, yes. And the reasons for that are just a slow growth world and and uh, low interest rates and so on. There's not a lot of tailwinds behind these two sectors. Not really. No, it's more about they don't really fit the investment process. It goes back to my argument about uh, identifying long term earnings compounders, which can differentiate themselves from competitors and exploit stronger market positions, and using that to reinvest into further growth. These businesses in the commodity sector, banks and what have you, tend to be, don't employ those sorts of characteristics. They tend to be incredibly cyclical and geared towards economic growth. Banks in particular are just basically cyclical businesses, but also highly leveraged as well. I was looking at JP Morgan the other day, which is one of the world's leading banks. And actually, if you look back over the last 30 or 40 years, the growth has been incredibly pedestrian and has been incredibly cyclical. So it's all about market timing in these sectors. And I go back to my first sort of principle, you know, don't get involved in market timing where possible. You know, as I mentioned, there's a couple of stocks, uh, say there's sort of sub 10% in the portfolio always where I won't get involved in these sorts of cyclical stocks. But BP um, and Shell fit within that sort of sphere at the moment. Bought those probably 16 months ago when they were down at 25, 30 bucks on the basis that it will bounce back to 60 at some stage. And in the meantime, they look very cheap, paying good dividends, and they can just take costs out of their business, which smaller exploration businesses cannot do. So it's all about taking out costs, reducing their break-even price per barrel, which they seem to be doing. And uh, at some stage, when the oil hits about 60 bucks, I'll probably be offloading them. So um, it's not a long-term secular trend I'm following there. It's more of a short-term value trade. In more general terms, are you actually finding uh, attractive opportunities or are you actually struggling to find 
attractive opportunities in 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 general terms. In other words, is you know is the market overall is it quite demanding on price? And most people think it's pretty highly valued. Uh, what what is your experience well, I mean, at the moment? Well, I've always struggled to find decent stocks. I mean, I find the investment process I've got is so sort of uh, rigid and tight, and there's so many sorts of components to it that I'm looking for that it's always quite hard to find a stock which I really like. Having said that, you know, every so often something does come through, a new IPO. I don't really like IPOs. It's quite hard to do your due diligence on them, but every so often one sort of comes out which looks interesting. Um, Alternatively, there's something coming up from the smaller company markets which is beginning to come into focus, or indeed something's come out of fashion. I think it's probably the same answer I give all the time, really. the, The number of new opportunities doesn't really sort of change that much price is important but it's not the primary thing you know if you can get the business right then price will come right anyway if you get a very good business which is compounding at a very high rate returning cash and investment uh, returns at a very high level then even if you get the price a little bit wrong say 10 or 20 percent wrong initially for instance then nine months later it's going to be it's going to be right again um and uh, there you are, you're left with an attractive investment at the right price for the next five, ten years. Um, much better that than get a, an attractively valued business where the business is looking, you, you misjudge that and got the competitive dynamic a bit wrong and um, the forecasts suddenly look not quite what you're expecting and the rating just sort of unwinds from there. Last time we spoke, I also um, put you on the spot by asking you um, if you were in the business of shorting stocks, what uh, stock might you... Uh uh, want to go short of? <laughs> you very smartly came up with the name of Debenhams, and uh, it's duly um, oh, well, there you go. disappointed. Uh, it's down about uh, what a sort of forty percent since then. Well, that's a case in point. You know, um, a lot of value investors would say that's been historically very cheap, and it's just getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because the competitive advantage, the competitive experience that it's surrounded by, is just getting more harder and harder for them as time goes by. You know, the answer is, your question is, no, I'm not into shorting. You know, every so often there's a name that sort of comes to mind like that, which I would be minded to do so if I could, but it's not sort of the top of my list of thinking. It's a long-only fund, which I manage. I think shortings are hard to gain, particularly, you know, if you look at the long-term trends of stock markets, they tend to go up over the longer term. We've had a very um, tumultuous year in many ways, but the stock market has done very well, particularly the UK stock market. Thanks a bit to sterling depreciation uh, and the fact that all the terrible things that people said were going to happen haven't yet happened, though they still might, of course. Um, so if you just had to sum up your mood at the moment, I mean, it's uh, sort of business as normal for you, is it? Yes, it is. I mean, I'm mildly more upbeat than it was that I was given economic outlook than when we last spoke. But I'm also, you know, at the same time, still very circumspect, given the structural challenges, in particular around sort of the build-up of private and public sector debt around the world and the challenges that's going to present going forward and what the monetary authorities are going to do about it. Um, you know, you can see that uh, they're desperate to raise interest rates, but I think uh, the global economy is going to be very, very sensitive to any predetermined sort of rate of tightening in monetary conditions and it's going to be very challenging for them to do that. Um, so. That is the dilemma uh, that I think we find ourselves in. But the precursor to that is that actually global economic growth does seem to be tepid, but now you're seeing it slightly pick up whilst QE has been reined back. 
so you know you're, you're left with a feeling well maybe it's real growth maybe this is something really you know tangible and something we should be believing a bit more in is the underlying sort of note of optimism that i i have and uh, want to believe in but uh, i don't want to bet the portfolio on it if you see what i'm saying we hope you've enjoyed this money makers podcast our podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on a variety of podcast channels including soundcloud itunes youtube and share radio's platform the podcasts are free and if you want to find out more or listen to some of the earlier interviews in this series please go to our website www.money-makers.co or follow us in future on any of the channels just mentioned thank you for listening